0: Welcome listeners to the NK News Podcast, recorded here in Seoul on a very hot and sweaty August 7, 2018. And a quick apology to our listeners, if you hear any electronic buzz or whir or hum, that's because we definitely need the air conditioning on at times like these. I am your host, Jacko's Wetsloot, and joining me today in the studio... Is Greg Scarlattiou, the executive director of the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea. Welcome, Greg. Jacko, my pleasure. It's so good to see you again. It's been what twenty years, my friend. Twenty one. Twenty one. But, but who's counting? Hey, uh, no twenty, right? Twenty. But uh, once again, NK News is offering a free year subscription to one reviewer who reviews our podcast, not only at iTunes but also at other platforms. Also, you can save fifty dollars off your NK News subscription by using the code Podcast at the checkout. Don't forget. If you enjoy the podcast, please share it with others so that our listenership will grow. An open appeal to listeners, if you were present at the 13th World Festival of Youth and Students in Pyongyang in July 1989, we would love to hear from you, so please send us an email to podcast at nknews.org. Now, to introduce today's guest, Greg Scarlattiu is executive director of the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea based in Washington, D.C. He has directed the publication of 24 reports and books and leads public media and international organization outreach to highlight North Korean human rights abuses. He has appeared as an expert witness at several congressional hearings on North Korean human rights. Prior to his work at HRNK, Greg was with the Korea Economic Institute in Washington, D.C. And prior to that, he and I were on a KBS foreigners talent contest back in uh, 1998 at the time of uh, Solal, I believe. I don't remember who won. Yeah, I know it wasn't me. Uh, Greg, it's great to see you again after all these years. Thanks for your time today and thanks for coming into the studio. Well, the pleasure is all mine. Great to be here. So the committee of uh, the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea... Who's in this committee? We uh, have a group
1: of uh, 25 senior Americans on the board. Well, 24 senior Americans and now one South Korean. Uh, This is a uh, fully bipartisan or nonpartisan organization, uh, a board comprising both Democrats and Republicans, an organization established in uh, 2001 when this group of luminaries, former diplomats, former senior government officials, private sector representatives, Asia-Pacific scholars came to the realization that there had been quite a bit of uh, research done on political security, military issues, but um, the body of research on North Korean human rights was very limited at the time, so the organization was established 17 years ago in 2001 as America's only North Korean human rights think tank. We have published more than 30 books and reports ever since we were the first organization to use satellite imagery to uh, investigate North Korea's political prison camps. This was happening in 2003 when we published the first hidden gulag report by David Hawk. We have continued to use the same methodology, combining satellite imagery, the factor testimony. Um, We have published reports on uh, North Korea's policy of human rights denial, leadership issues, the Songbun social classification system, North Korea's internal security agencies. So reports on North Korea's human rights situation and also on issues of direct relevance to North Korea's human rights situation.
0: Now, what does it mean that the organization is based in America? Does it mean it has a particularly US-centric slant on matters? Absolutely not. Of course, the, the, the overwhelming majority of
1: the board members are Americans, and uh, up until just a few months ago, we did not have any foreign nationals on the board. Now, we do have one, none other than Ambassador E. jong hun Former South Korean ambassador for North Korean human rights, who is uh, continues to be a uh, tenured professor at Yonsei University and uh, also director of the Human Liberty Center at Yonsei University. So, while the overwhelming majority of board members are American citizens, of course, we uh, we address and we reflect a set of values principles uh, that are international, fundamentally. And how and when did you get involved with the committee? I have been with the committee for seven years, a little over seven years, since July um, of uh, 2011. um, I'm a naturalized American. I was born and raised in communist Romania. I uh, was a, a freshman at Bucharest University in December 1989 when communism fell, when the Ceausescu regime fell, as you recall, Jacko. Mm-hmm. This was the one European country that was most similar to Kim Il-sung's North Korea. When Ceausescu visited North Korea for the first time in 1971, he basically uh, became a great friend of Kim il and absolutely fell in love with the North Korean, uh, Uri-shik, our style of socialism with Jude ideology with uh, the leader, worship, and everything else, and pretty much tried to turn Romania into the North Korea of Eastern Europe. Uh, right after the changes, I had never been outside the country. Of course, Romania was a very uh, tightly closed uh, country at the time. During the Cold War, I went through several rounds of exams. I had been reading quite avidly about developmental models. I came across some writings on the Han River Miracle, the the South Korean um, um, uh, developmental story. And I I wrote an essay about the Han River Miracle as I was taking those exams. And I I was offered a scholarship by the newly established South Korean embassy in Bucharest. They didn't even have a building at the time. They were staying at the Intercontinental Hotel. The Romanians had had relations only with North Koreans prior to that. And uh, so I became the first Romanian uh, ever to study in South Korea. As a South Korean government scholarship student, I did my uh, year of intensive language training, my BA and MA in international relations at uh, Seoul National University. Worked here for a few years then made the transition to the United States, went to the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy um, up in Massachusetts at Tufts University, worked in international development for six years, Korea Economic Institute, KEI in Washington, D.C. for the next three years. Initially, I had absolutely no interest in North Korean human rights. Having come from a communist country, I was absolutely not interested in, in communist China or communist North Korea. I thought they would go the same way as the Eastern Europeans, obviously. Uh, during the days of the Konane Hengun, the, the, the largest March, the Great Famine of the mid to late 1990s, I came to the realization that this was an entirely different story, and that's when I gained this interest in North Korean human rights and humanitarian issues, is being about... Um, twenty three years now 23 twenty four years now, I continue to follow the issue work with uh, relevant groups, organizations, individuals. I uh, have had a, a radio column, Korean language radio column for Radio Free Asia for the past 15 years. It was a fantastic opportunity to be able to dedicate myself fully 24/7 to this issue seven years ago and I've uh, well as, as tough as the work is, and as tough as all the aspects of this work are. Um, I have to say that I enjoy every minute of
0: it. That's great. And that's actually a very interesting uh, personal story there. But I'm curious, how does the work of HRNK differ from the work of, for example, uh, the North Korea Database, NKDB, based here in Seoul, Korea, who are also largely a research and information uh, gathering uh, organization?
1: Well, NKDB does great work. And uh, other organizations based in South Korea do great work. HRNK is the only U.S.-based organization tasked to do this exclusively to research, investigate, and report on North Korean human rights. Um, In addition to the quality of the research, one of the, the great strengths of our organization is the ability to apply the findings and recommendations included in our report to real-case situations, basically real-world situations. Uh, we, we have been credited for having made significant contributions when the uh, the first North Korean Human Rights Act was passed in the United States, 2004, when it was extended, reauthorized in 2008, 2012, why not last year, 2017, of course, the, the Act of 2017 has just been signed into law by the the president uh, just um, a few weeks ago, whenever there is a, a congressional hearing on North Korean human rights or invited to testify, we do not lobby per se, but we do provide our reports, our findings, our recommendations to relevant decision makers. So I think that we are credited for being able to translate our findings and recommendations into policy recommendations that have been adopted and have had a significant impact on U.S. North Korea policy, U.S. North Korea human rights policy in particular.
0: Uh, You say that your organization doesn't lobby, but you do have policy recommendations. How do you, uh, where's the defining line between those two? We simply provide information.
1: We do not knock on doors to advocate for a certain policy. We simply provide our reports, our findings, our recommendations to congressional offices, to relevant uh, government agencies, of course, to uh, UN missions, to relevant UN, UN agencies. So we basically make this information. Information available to... Uh critical decision makers in the United States and beyond at the UN and elsewhere. Under special circumstances, if there is a particular issue that we are very involved with, we might go beyond that and actually address letters to relevant US government officials, government agencies, again, UN agencies. So of course, we do engage in lobbying, we do engage in advocacy. This is not an activist organization. This is, again, a research organization. But of course, what we do is human rights. Mm. So there is certainly uh, an element
0: of advocacy embedded in our work. Last year, when it looked like uh, things might get very hot on the peninsula here, speaking for myself as someone who lives here, were you at that stage advocating any particular course of action or inaction to decision makers in D.C.? No, absolutely not. Uh,
1: What we do is to address North Korean human rights. We do not It's a very complicated world. Of course, we follow very closely. But as an organization, we do not uh, get officially involved in political security and military issues. I remember those times. I remember frantic calls made by media worldwide. What I always said was that when you're talking about those uh, three... Strike groups uh, apparently approaching the peninsula. This is not about starting a second Korean war. This is about preventing a second Korean war. Uh, This is about applying the military element of military power by underlining U.S. commitment to the U.S.-South Korea alliance to the defense of South Korea by underlining U.S. commitment to the Japan-U.S. alliance and the defense of Japan. And obviously, as part of the maximum pressure campaign, this approach worked.
0: Uh, now, you categorize uh, the different types of human rights abuses that are going on in North Korea into three broad categories. Could you tell us what they are and what they mean? The the, the one type of
1: human rights violation that that's absolutely egregious and uh, that has... Clearly being classified as a crime against humanity by the UN Commission of Inquiry report issued in February 2014, is uh, violations happening at uh, North Korea's detention facilities, North Korea's political prison camps in particular, and of course we have also focused, in addition to the North Korea's vast system of unlawful imprisonment, we have focused on what our author Bob Collins has coined as North Korea's policy of human rights denial. So basically, Bob Collins, Ken Goss, and other HRNK authors have looked at the nature of the Kim regime. They have looked at the operation of North Korean government agencies, and basically, they established the connection between their modus operandi and the implementation of this policy of human rights denial. And I would say that... Uh, A a third set of violations would be violations um, related to North Koreans who uh, attempt to escape the country. This is reflected in um, our report uh, entitled Lives for Sale. That's a report that looks in particular at uh, the uh, the exploitation of uh, North Korean women along the road of defection. It's a report that looks at the plight of women. And as you know, Jacko, for many years now, women have represented 80% of the North Korean escapee community here in South Korea and looking at the numbers for the first for the first half of 2018 the percentage appears to be even higher this year we're we're getting close to 90% so these would be three main themes that that have been explored in our work but of course we have looked at uh, other aspects as well. Of course, we're now in the process of of exploring other issues as well.
0: Uh, How do you uh, collect information? You mentioned uh, satellite photography. What else do you do? Of
1: course, the challenge that we all face is that North Korea is such a closed society. Access is a very big issue. There is newly acquired satellite imagery, and there is also archived satellite imagery because for decades, satellite imagery experts were not looking for human rights violations. They were looking for uh, basically imagery relevant to other issues, political security, military issues. However, it so happens that there is a lot of very helpful information pertaining to human rights contained even in those older archived images. So we are looking at those as well, of course. Escapee testimony is extraordinarily important. There are 32,000 North Korean escapees currently living in South Korea, others living in other countries. Uh, their testimony has been extraordinarily important in um, investigating North Korea's human rights situation. We corroborate satellite imagery with uh, defector testimony when we research North Korea's detention facilities. Like many other groups, perhaps your group as well, we, we might have the capability, with the help of friends and colleagues, the capability to collect information from inside the country through a variety of means. And of course, we conduct a lot of desk research and your work here at NK News is testament to the fact that there is a lot of research. There is a lot of stuff being written about North Korea uh, on a daily basis. So there is a lot of desk research involved in here as well. And of course, there is consultation with uh, other non-governmental organizations, consultation with government officials. And when I say government officials, I'm not only referring to American or South Korean government officials or Japanese. It goes beyond that. So there's uh, quite a variety of sources that we rely on in our reporting. And of course, we rely on the expertise of our report authors, most of them bring decades of relevant experience to our work at HRNK.
0: Without going into too much detail, could you sort of briefly sketch out what are the different types of camps, uh, who's in them, and what are the uh, the major differences in, in how they're administered or how long people spend there or what the conditions are there? So Jacko, the number that you have
1: often heard mentioned is 80,000 to 120,000 prisoners. That number refers to the prisoners held at political prison camps, kuali uh, In Korean, kwalihada means to manage, so these are places where people are managed. Basically, all political prisoners held at the kuali political prison camps were the victims of enforced disappearances. There wasn't even a semblance of, uh, of due process, of legal process. There were simply taken away in the middle of the night with family members, taken to these detention facilities where there are no actual prison terms. Some of them are let go. Some of them spend their entire lives there. They're subjected to a lot of human rights violations. But the the biggest killer at these camps is the vicious cycle of forced labor and induced malnutrition. They're given production targets They have to work more. They don't meet those production targets. They're given less food, more work, less food, more work, and they just waste away. Of course, public secret executions also happen in these facilities. Then there are the Kyohua Sol. Uh, These are Re-education through forced labor camps. There are prison sentences. There are common offenders who are held at these camps. In recent years, we have found out that there are political prisoners being held at the Kyoha so reeducation camps as well, together with the general prison population. The prisoners are given prison terms. They do just that, they execute forced labor. One difference between the Kyoha so and the Kuali So, in addition to that, is that Families, family members, if they're able to do that, may bring food to the prisoners. Again, fundamental difference, the fact that they're actually given prison sentences. I mentioned that political prisoners are also held at the so. At one particular facility, uh, Kyoha so Number 12 in North Hamgyong Province, based on satellite uh, imagery and uh, defector testimony, we were able to establish that many more women have been imprisoned there in recent years. Most of them are refugees forcibly repatriated by China in direct violation of the uh, the 1951 UN Refugee Convention, which stipulates that a person qualifies to have access to the process leading to acquiring political refugee status if that person faces a credible fear of persecution upon return to his or her country. Well, in this case, 800 out of 1,000 female prisoners at Chongori 80% of them are actually North Korean women forcibly repatriated from China. Of course, there are other types of, um, of detention facilities. There are the Chikyolso uh, short-term police detention facilities, the Kuryujang detention facility, the, the Nodong Talionde, that is a mobile labor brigade. Basically, prisoners move around uh, uh, doing forced labor. So it's, it's a very complex system of detention. The focus has been primarily on the political prison camps. However, NKDB and other organizations, including us, have focused on the Kyo Hwaso camps and the latest David Hawk report we published up to Hidden Gulag 4. The fifth one was actually not Hidden Gulag, but Parallel Gulag. That was the title because it actually addressed the other system, the Kyo Hwaso system of re-education through labor camps.
0: As far as I'm aware, the, uh, the North Korean government doesn't admit to the existence of any kind of prison camp. Is that correct? that is correct. Now you've argued that it's it's very important as a first step that North Korea uh, admit to the existence of these camps. Yes, we
1: have made that argument and uh, even more importantly, I think it is important to educate the people of North Korea through information campaigns on their human rights, and on the political prison camps. You're absolutely right. The North Korean government will deny, adamantly deny the existence of these facilities. They're presented with ample evidence, uh, satellite imagery, defector testimony. They'll claim that these are just picturesque villages scattered across the mountains of North Korea. That said, each and every person living in North Korea knows that the political prison camps exist, of course they might also think that they're essential in uh, in preserving the the political system and the regime of North Korea i think that in addition to persuading the North Korean regime to admit to the existence of the camps it will be very important to continue to inform the people of North Korea through radio broadcasting through other available Uh, vehicles um, on their own human rights situation and the egregious violations happening. This is very important because this is the 21st century. It is the year 2018. And if uh, the DPRK is really serious uh, about development, it is simply unthinkable to be running a water and sanitation uh, project next to a political prison camp. It is very important, first and foremost, because according to to the UN Commission of Inquiry report submitted to the UN Human Rights Council in February 2014, crimes against humanity are committed at these camps, Pursuant to policies established at the highest level of the state, we cannot simply forget about crimes against humani- humanity just because Kim Jong Un is engaging in summit diplomacy.
0: So, in terms of giving humanitarian aid to the North Korean people, what are there things that should be prioritized above other things? I mean, what should come first?
1: As far as humanitarian aid is concerned, the biggest concerns are the following: transparency monitoring and evaluation, ensuring that the humanitarian assistance reaches the most vulnerable people, those who need it the most. So the two major concerns have been transparency and diversion of aid away from the most vulnerable toward the the groups and individuals that the regime regards as essential in uh, preserving its grip on power. Uh, my organization, and you know that, Jacko, because you have uh, examined our 10 policy recommendations. My organization, the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea, HRNK, is fully in favor of humanitarian assistance extended to the most vulnerable in North Korea, those who need it most. My organization has also been very active in uh, urging the humanitarian arm of the United Nations, humanitarian agencies that have a presence on the ground in North Korea to apply the human rights upfront approach to their work. The former Secretary General, who was a South Korean, Pan Ki-moon, was uh, very serious about this issue of the human rights upfront approach, especially post-Sri Lanka. Fundamentally, it boils down to this. The, uh, the World Health Organization has a program called Health Prisons. They have a presence in North Korea. Why not seek access to those in detention? I mentioned Chongori Kyohaso number 12 to you just a couple of minutes ago. August, September 2016, Joe Bermudas and I co-authored a uh, rapid assessment of flooding at this uh, detention facility, this re-education through labor camp, where 800 forcibly repatriated women are held. We tried to look at other facilities, but because of the the cloud cover, we couldn't. We found out that there had been massive uh, flooding at this facility. We informed the UN immediately they were conducting a rapid assessment of flood damage uh, not too far from this facility. They responded immediately. Senior leadership at the UN wrote to us right away. However, um, nothing really happened on the ground. And and of course, humanitarian organizations are, are faced with this dilemma, especially in North Korea, but elsewhere as well. They fear that their access, the very little access that they have, might be uh, jeopardized. But uh, basically, these would be the, the priorities when it comes to humanitarian assistance. Development assistance, an entirely different story. That said, if the North Korean government, if the DPRK has a problem ensuring a reasonable level of transparency on humanitarian assistance programs, just wait for the development characters to come in because the standard is so much higher. Now, some
0: people might argue that you're in, in effect, holding all 23 million North Koreans hostage to the one or 200,000 prisoners locked up in the prison camps. What do you say to that?
1: To that, I say that humanitarian assistance is meant for first and foremost, for the most vulnerable, for those who fear it most. You cannot simply exclude one vulnerable group from those uh, who are the beneficiaries of this assistance. Of course, there are other vulnerable groups, and it really depends on uh, the province where you live in North Korea. And uh, you recall very well nutritional surveys uh, conducted by UN agencies or with the assistance of uh, UN agencies. We're well aware that in northeastern provinces, nutritional deficiencies are much more serious than uh, they're in the capital city of Pyongyang. So the only way to tell who the most vulnerable are is by means of having transparency. You cannot help people unless you can, you, you, you can diagnose these uh, nutritional deficiencies. You need to know who where you need to know the age group, you need to know the type of nutritional deficiency. Very basic stuff, but the only way to do this is is based on a reasonable level of transparency, based on conducting needs assessments, based on conducting monitoring and evaluation of programs.
0: How has the human rights situation in North Korea changed under the leadership of Kim Jong-un in the last seven years?
1: We have identified several trends. One of them, of course, has been the uh, the very aggressive purge that began in early 2009 when uh, Kim Jong-un began preparing uh, for the second hereditary transmission of power in North Korea. According to the Seoul-based Institute for National Security Strategy, INSS, only during the first five years of the Kim regime, 340 senior officials were purged representatives of all four fundamental building blocks of the regime have been executed. I don't mean to be dropping names on you, but of course, the uncle, Chang song Tek would be one example of a member of the inner core of the family, also the party. He was the, the director of the administrative department within the central committee of the Korean Workers' Party. Vice Marshal uh, Ryong-ho was demoted um, and executed in the summer of 2012. Uh, Ryu uh Vice Chair of the State Secure Department, the SSD, in uh, 2009. And, of course, the list continues. We all recall the assassination of uh, even of Kim Jong-un's half-brother with a, um, a nerve agent, VX nerve agent, at a busy... Uh, international airport in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia in um, February of 2017. Uh, we had had the uh, rumors, uh, we had heard rumors from uh, North Korean escapees and sources inside the country that the ZPU-4 anti-aircraft machine gun system was the the tool of choice when it came to the executions of uh, senior officials. Our organization was actually able to acquire a satellite image taken just just minutes before an execution by ZPU-4 at Kangon Military Academy, not too far from Pyongyang. You can imagine what the system does uh, for uh, machine gun barrels, um, 14.5 millimeter caliber metric style, 50 caliber American style, automatic fire. Uh, Human bodies are practically pulverized, turned into pink mist. So the purges, that's the first trend. The second trend would be a, a restructuring of the political prison camps. Of course, this detention system has been in flux. Since it was uh, set up in the 1950s, we have seen facilities close to the border with China. For example, uh, Camp Number 22 in uh, North Hamgyong Province having been shut down simply because it was too close to the border with China. There were Chinese tourists, businesses in the area. It was bad PR. Moreover, the last thing the regime wants is yet another former political prisoner escaping into China and from there on into the, the free world to tell his or her story. Prisoners were moved to other facilities. About 7,000 disappeared in the process. We, we had reports of starvation. We were unable to determine exactly where they went, but most likely they were transferred to other detention facilities, which have expanded. Amnesty International and HRNK have documented the expansion of Camp Number 14. Uh, that facility has expanded into the adjacent village. We have documented the the, the doubling in size of uh, Camp 25. This is more of a um, in uh, in Tongjin. This is more of a, a penitentiary type facility. Uh, so this is the second trend. Detention facilities close to the border areas have been closed. Inland detention facilities have been expanded. Another trend has been the disproportionate oppression of women. Women are the most active market agents at North Korea's open markets, black markets, farmers markets. They have assumed primary responsibility for the survival of their families. Women are the ones who travel to China in search of economic opportunity And they're the ones who have taken the brunt of the repression. They're the ones who arrested the markets for alleged wrongdoing and subsequently imprisoned. They're the ones who are arrested and forcibly repatriated by China to conditions of danger, to a place North Korea where they face a credible fear of persecution. So these would be three trends that um, that I could mention as having happened on uh, Kim Jong-un's watch.
0: And all of them are uh, negative trends, so it doesn't sound like things are getting any better under Kim Jong-un.
1: Well, uh, they're all negative trends. Uh, one has to remember that um, this uh, dynastic succession of power has had a negative impact on human rights, always. His father had 20 years to prepare. Kim Jong-un had only three. He has been in a mad rush. to establish a power base, to establish himself as ruler of North Korea. But one can also say that we have seen the effects of the international human rights campaign on North Korea. Uh, The DPRK government has reacted. uh, Following the UNCOI report, they dispatched their foreign minister to the General Assembly for the first time in 15 years. Uh, He addressed human rights in his address. He's done that on several other occasions. They have uh, organized so-called press briefings on human rights at various locations in the world, including New York City. Of course, it's simply a matter of denying that these violations are happening, claiming that North Korea is a worker's paradise. But that said, the regime has come to the realization that post-UNCOI, human rights is here to stay. The issue used to come and go away. That has no longer been the case since the UN COI. Of course, we're also aware of the, the families of North Korean escapees being paraded before TV cameras in, in order to put pressure on people here. And I think that for the past few months, we have seen additional pressure being put on this community of 32,000 former North Koreas here in South Korea in an attempt by the DPRK regime to somehow acquire some influence over these SKPs.
0: Now, I know that you've said that uh, HRNK doesn't uh, do any actual lobbying or advocacy work. Do you personally advocate for regime change in North Korea? Uh, no, this organization
1: has never advocated for regime change in North Korea. Nowhere will you find a statement uh, made on behalf of HRNK or a statement by HRNK advocating for regime change in North Korea. Personally, I, I witnessed the Romanian anti-communist revolution up close and personal. I witnessed the bloodshed, and uh, if, if there's one thing I learned from that is that my wish to the people of Korea living in the south and in the north is a uh, a smooth transition. That's the ideal scenario. That's the DPRK regime accepting reform, openness, understanding that that is the only road to development that is the only road to long-term sustainable development.
0: So how do you respond to people who argue that there's a danger of human rights being used as a political tool by people who would like to see the overthrow of the Kim Jong-un government?
1: I hear this argument all the time. I'm I hear, sure you do. Uh, especially at the UN, Jacko. I, uh, for many months, I was involved in a campaign to gain consultative statu- status at the United Nations. We we received consultative status in, in May, and of course, with the great help of, um, of the US-UN mission. That provided extraordinary support to U.S. civil society organizations. Ambassador Nikki Haley, Ambassador Kelly Curry, our ambassador to ECOSOC. And as I engaged in this campaign to reach out to all missions, friends and foes, I heard this argument a lot, especially from uh, the the permanent missions of Russia, Venezuela, Cuba, China, Burundi and other friends and supporters and beacons of of human rights and democracy. It's an argument that's made that human rights is weaponized. As far as this organization is concerned, human rights is not weaponized. Our mission is simple. Our mission is to do something that indeed the regime of Kim Jong-un fears the most. That is to find out and tell the truth about
0: North Korea's human rights situation. How do you seek alliances or collaborations or positive engagements with people that you don't necessarily fully agree with? I think it's very important to
1: sit down and talk. It is very important to exchange views. It is very important not to focus on changing hearts and minds. It is simply very important to sit down together and do a lot of listening. Uh, I don't think that, I mean, of course, apart from those who are more on the fringes, arguing that what we do is to weaponize human rights, that our objective is to bring down the regime. That is absolutely not right. So, apart from those, I think that uh, everyone agrees that all of these angles are very important. It's extraordinarily important to listen, learn from others, and share our own views.
0: Now, uh, there are also, um, there's an argument that I heard just last week that. Uh, concepts of talking about concepts of transitional justice that uh, namely that those who are in power in North Korea the elites that they'll be brought to account for their crimes that talking about that right now at this point in time is counterproductive because it only leads to a further tightening and stricter controls in North Korea they say if you want real opening you should stop talking about justice Uh, And they would point to maybe Burma as an example of where that has happened. Uh, How do you uh, respond to that idea?
1: Transitional justice is a very complex mechanism. Transitional justice employs a very complex toolkit. Of course, when one says transitional justice, the first thought that comes to mind is prosecution by municipal tribunals, by international tribunals. Well, prosecution has basically been a fairly small part of transitional justice that the percentage of actual crimes against humanity uh, that, that have been prosecuted has been low over the over many decades. Transitional justice, of course, is about prosecution. When it comes to crimes against humanity, when it comes to those who refuse until the very last hour to, to change, protect the victims, those who continue to carry out crimes against humanity, prosecution might indeed be the only option. But one has to remember that amnesty is also a very important part of transitional justice. And of course, one has to remember that the people of Korea living in the North will have to agree that amnesty is necessary. And and of course there are uh, truth and reconciliation commissions. uh, Very well uh, South Africa is very well known for this. Of course there was uh, during uh, previous progressive administrations a a truth and reconciliation process to a a smaller degree here in South Korea as well. There are issues pertaining to downsizing the North Korean military retraining, uh, decommissioning officers and NCOs what do you do with the militaries? Do you merge them? Do you disband the North Korean military? There are serious issues pertaining to property rights. There are serious issues pertaining to compensation. Presumably, unification would happen, uh, and that is truly the only desirable scenario under a free, capitalist, democratic Republic of Korea. In that case, who is responsible for reparations for compensation paid to victims? So, again, transitional justice is a very complex mechanism. And if there is a lesson uh, the North Korean elites can learn from the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. That is, rather, that it was the former communist elites that became the the great winners of the post communist transition period.
0: Do you think it's better to avoid, for example, doing business with North Korea or visiting North Korea? Is it better to to sort of stay away until? the kind of transparency that you're looking for is is possible? Well, there is certainly great value in engagement. Engagement presents the
1: potential to change hearts and minds. On the other hand, absent um, observance of fundamental human rights, Doing business in North Korea is an extraordinarily tough proposition. There are human rights groups, consumer protection groups, labor unions that would have a serious problem with companies that engage with a regime that uh, employs slave labor, forced labor, observes no labor legislation whatsoever. By the way, it does have its own labor legislation, but the DPRK does not observe the labor legislation as one who has worked in international development, I know that divorcing human rights from development programs is an approach that is doomed to failure. Uh, there can be no development without protection of private property, and this surely not the case in North Korea. There can be uh, no uh, real investment without protecting uh, foreign direct investors. Uh, if, uh, let's say, the, the World Bank Group were to consider North Korea tomorrow for, say, for example, an um, IDA, an International Development Association program. Basically, this is the type of, uh, of credit made available to poor countries, countries with poor credit, uh, loans extended at, at zero interest, uh, long grace periods, uh, very low interest, The one thing that the World Bank Group asks for in exchange is discipline. Mm -hmm. You cannot qualify for development programs if one third of your GDP is spent on military expenditure. You cannot qualify for, uh, say, World Bank. Oh, by the way, ADB assistance. Well, World Bank assistance comes first, ADB afterwards. You cannot qualify for international development assistance if you do not safeguard Uh, property rights if there is no, if formally there is no private property. And there are so many issues. These are just the basics that North Korea would have to address. So should North Korea comply with um, UN um, Security Council resolutions asking it to give up its nuclear program and ballistic missiles Absolutely. Uh, Should North Korea comply with uh, recommendations made on its human rights situation by multiple UN fora? Absolutely. But those would be just fundamental preconditions to proceeding with a development program in North Korea. There would be so many other conditions that must be met. On the other hand, the other side of the coin, of course, the argument has been made that uh, in the case of South Africa... Uh, again, South Africa, in order to do away with uh, apartheid in South Africa. South Africa was uh, subjected to a very serious embargo that even included South African sports teams, South Africa's cricket team, rugby team. In the case of North Korea, although the regime has developed nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles and is committing crimes against humanity, against its own people, Everyone is so desperate to know whether the cheerleaders are coming. Are they coming? Are they not coming? Are they coming to Olympics? Are they not coming? Uh, so, So the situation has always been different somehow, the belief that we could do things better if they only understood us better, or if they, if we only understood them better—that that wishful thinking is still out there.
0: So, what what do you think of the current approach of both the uh, South Korean and the U.S. governments? Uh, uh, human rights have been left out of the equation, haven't they?
1: During the the months of the maximum pressure campaign, the Trump administration effectively applied two fundamental elements of national power, economic power through the strengthening of the sanctions regime based on UN Security Council resolutions and our own US legislation, The Trump administration also very effectively applied the military element of national power by deploying assets to the region and underlining commitment to critical alliances with the Republic of Korea and Japan. Currently, uh, the Trump administration is experimenting with the diplomatic element of national power through this unprecedented uh, summit diplomacy. Now, of course, uh, critics will say that there is a a long record of uh, North Korean diplomatic deception. And, of course, the Trump administration is fully aware of that. After all, North Korea, the DPRK, is a state that joined the MPT in 1985, pulled out of the MPT and developed nuclear weapons, joined the 1994 Geneva Agreed Framework, and developed a clandestine uranium enrichment program joined the NPT again, pulled out of the NPT again, joined the six-party talks, violated the terms of the six-party talks, joined the leap day agreement, announced uh, a missile launch two and a half weeks later, uh, has violated each and every applicable uh, human rights document and UN Security Council resolution. Diplomacy should never stop. That said, I'm a student of diplomacy myself. I will never say that diplomacy must stop, of course. It must be diplomacy based on uh, a full understanding of the nature of the DPRK regime, its fundamental strategic objectives, and its uh, its diplomatic track record. Let's see where things go. Of course, the argument can be made that North Korea hasn't tested a uh, ballistic missile since November 2014. They have placed a de facto moratorium on their ballistic and uh, ballistic missile and nuclear program. They have um, offered a few gestures of goodwill, such as the return of American detainees, uh, the return of the remains of 55 U.S. servicemen. Of course, that said, they claim to have 200 sets of remains while hold on to the remaining 145 and not send all of them to the United States while we're at it working on uh, confidence-building measures. So there have been some positive signs, but fundamentally, the objective of the United States and that of the international community and the United Nations continues to be, whether we spell it out as such or not, CVID, the golden standard, the complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization and dismantlement of North Korean human rights uh, program. Has human rights been sacrificed in this round of summit diplomacy between President Moon Jae-in and uh, Kim, between President Trump and Kim? Well, we have seen this pattern before. This has happened across multiple administrations. Human rights is the one issue that tends to be sacrificed on the altar of um, political security and military issues, which are, of course, very important. You're talking about the lives of millions that are at stake, but we have surely seen this before. And I think that Post-UNCOI, post-February 2014, we are in a very different predicament. Human rights is here to stay. Uh, It might seem that the human rights issue has subsided. Uh, I am absolutely confident that the human rights issue will make a comeback in the coming months.
0: As somebody from a former communist country, Uh, What do you think it is that's made the system of North Korea so resilient while other systems have changed or collapsed or otherwise been transformed? The fundamental difference between Eastern
1: Europeans and North Koreans is that Eastern Europeans had known other systems, other political systems, good, bad, terrible, but they had the memory of different systems. In the case of North Korea, all North Koreans have experienced has been totalitarian political systems, Stalinist communism. Japanese imperial occupation from 1905 to 1945. Prior to that, 500 years of feudal Choson dynasty. I do not mean this as an insult to the Choson dynasty, but some of the worst elements that were to be borrowed from that totalitarian system were adopted by the system established by Kim Il-sung. Of course, in addition to that, the relentless coercion, control, surveillance, and punishment of the population, the, uh, the relentless brainwashing and indoctrination of the population, information control, these have all been factors that have maintained the Kim regime in power.
0: Well, thank you once again to Greg Scolariu for coming on the NK News podcast. That website, once again, is www.hrnk.org. Don't forget, listeners, you can listen to all of our shows as well as read full bios and show notes on our own website, www.nknews.org, which is the leading repository of North Korean research, news and analysis. And we hope to see you there. And you can send feedback, comments, questions, or guest suggestions to podcast at nknews.org. Our podcast was produced, as always, by Arius Dare and facilitated by Chad O'Carroll and Christina Lee. And a reminder that one random reviewer per week will win a free NK News membership, so please review us after listening, and you might win. Also, you can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the code PODCAST at the checkout and share this podcast with your friends because if we don't hit 5,000 subscribers by the end of the year, I might defect and end up in a camp in North Korea. We'll get you out, Jackal. Thank you very much, Greg.